0: Hey folks, Dr. Tim Jordan here, and thanks so much for tuning in to this brand new uh, Raising Daughters podcast. And whether you are walking around the neighborhood or driving in your car or ho- however you're, you listen to these podcasts, thanks so much for, for stopping by and listening in. And I'm really excited today for the topic. I've been wanting to do this podcast for a while, I've done a lot of reading. And uh, if you go to my website, after this, look at my show notes. I'll list a bunch of the books that poured information into me, which I am then pouring out into you. Um, books like The Talent Code by Daniel Coyle, Range by David Epstein, Dark, Dark Horse by Todd Rose, Originals by Adam Grant, The Element, and Finding Your Element by Ken Robinson. The topic today is going to be about how do you help your kids develop their talents And let me start by saying, I don't want you to get out of this, that our job as parents, our primary focus as parents is going to be to raise a professional athlete or a violinist who will be in the symphony orchestra. I hope you know by now from listening to these podcasts, that's not my bent. I think we too often treat our kids like pre-professionals like they're all on this track to get a college scholarship for sports or whatever. I don't want you to get that out of this. This is about how do you help your kids develop their skills, improve their skills with anything, whether you're talking about violin, math, soccer, art, singing, dance, whatever. So first and foremost, you might want to first think about what's my end in mind with my kids. I think we have this cookie cutter approach these days to, that all kids are supposed to be on the same path to going to a four-year college, and not just a four-year college, but a top college and getting out and getting a great job and making a lot of money. And all our kids are not going to follow that path, and they shouldn't. I remember a couple of years ago, I saw a girl, I'll call her Anna, who was a junior in high school, and her GPA was 2.0, and she's attracted a lot of, or she had attracted a lot of Anger from her parents or teachers who always talked about how bright she was and she should be doing better, and and she was uh, being labeled as being label uh, lazy and unmotivated. She would gotten kind of depressed and withdrawn at home uh, with her parents and her teachers. And worse yet, when I talked to Anna in the office, she had started embracing a lot of labels which were not true. Labels like being lazy and and depressed, and uh, kind of a good-for-nothing, if you will. And uh, and embracing those labels and starting to discourage herself uh, made it even worse. She had been diagnosed with some learning disabilities, including having a hard time processing new information. She had problems with reading comprehension. And so she would sit in class and watch her peers barely open their book and get straight A's while she was laboring away to achieve C's and D's at best. So it made sense to me, after 11 years of struggling, she had become discouraged to the point of giving up. I kind of liken it to thinking about some kid uh, who's being forced to to attend art school for seven hours a day. Someone who's not artistic at all. If you force any kid who's not good at art to attend art school for seven hours a day, five days a week, nine months of the year, while everyone around them is drawing and painting and sculpting with ease, they also would probably develop some antipathy towards their schooling and what i'd noticed was everyone seemed to be missing out on what when they would see anna at her best anna was very passionate about drawing and when she was doing anything artsy she was extremely focused and she wasn't lazy and she was passionate i'm going to put a hand i hope a photo of a hand that her hand that she drew on in class one day I hope it comes out. That was amazing. She was bored, as usual, and so she painted on her hand this incredible design in about 10 minutes. Incredible. Anna may never show that kind of focus and enthusiasm for mathematics and language arts and science and all that. But she is showing us that she can get fully focused and see things through with her artistic creations. She told me she had thought about wanting to go to a school like in the NYU Art School after graduating from high school, even though everybody around her was discouraging that because you can't make money. Again, there's that one path thing again. So I think the end in mind you might want to consider with your children is helping them to develop the autonomy that they are willing to see things, see things through and practice hard, etc., I think in this culture, too many parents value achievement over character, too. And there's lots of good research that shows that the more you value achievement, the more kids feel a uh, feel, uh, fear of failure. They're more likely to strive for guaranteed success than take risks or are to be original. If you want your kids to develop talents, and especially things like uh, original thought, which is so valued today in, in the real world, then I think we need to start valuing character instead. There's good studies that show that uh, when parents value character over achievement, um, that there's better uh, uh, outcomes, better mental health, less misbehavior in school. They do better with their schoolwork. And the kids who who fared the uh, the worst in some of these studies was the ones who had mothers who placed a higher value on achievement than character, and also moms that were critical. A lot of anxiety builds up because you're worried about keeping up with or outshining your peers. Some kids get depressed because they may not be able to uh, rise up to the expectations of their parents, and then they feel like a failure. So first and foremost, we need to start valuing character over achievement. There's a lot of good studies that show that being gifted or being a genius or being a prodigy, that those are the kinds of things that are very unreliable indicators of long-term success. In the books, uh, The Originals and The Talent Code that I read, they talked about uh, creative geniuses not being qualitatively better in their fields. They weren't qualitatively better, they were more quantitatively better, meaning they produced more volume of work that gave them the ability to to uh, improve their uh, their studies and improve their skills. It also allowed them to Uh, have more variation in their work and a higher chance of originality. For instance, Shakespeare produced 37 plays and 154 sonnets. We don't know about all those because they weren't that great, but out of all that volume came the masterpiece. Mozart had over 600 pieces that he wrote. Beethoven had about 650 pieces that he wrote as well. Picasso had over 1,800 paintings, 1,200 sculptures and 2,800 ceramics and about 12,000 drawings. Now, obviously, we don't know about those 12,000 drawings and those 2,800 ceramics and the 1,200 sculptures. We only know the, the really good ones, the ones that were the, the genius ones. I read somewhere that Einstein had published about 248 publications. People who are at the top of their game, people who end up uh, being the Shakespeare's and the Beethoven's of our world, they generate their most original output during periods in which they produced the largest volume. That actually quantity was more predict- was a more predictable path to equality. Let me say that again cuz I, I butchered it. Quantity is the most predictable path to quality. So it requires autonomy. It, re- it requires downtime. It means we need to let our kids daydream um, allow them to take risks and, and, to learn, and to make mistakes and learn from them. I don't think our educational system is geared for that. It's more geared for conformity, if you will. There's, I saw some good studies that show that students tend to try harder and enjoy school more when they set their own expectations for themselves and then try to achieve those. Effectively, they were directing their own destiny. That made them happier and more motivated. That autonomy piece is huge. Autonomy leads to a higher engagement because you're doing what you want to do. You're doing what you chose to do. You're doing it because you're passionate about it. You have an interest in it. You're also, besides being more engaged in that activity, you're also going to be more willing to persist and overcome obstacles and and not get too down and too discouraged about mistakes because you're choosing it and therefore you're more willing to push through. And it's only those kinds of kids... And adults who are going to have mastery of their, of their fields. I read a couple books in the last year about, about rock bands in the 60s and 70s. And one of the things that I learned, which I didn't know before, was that most of the greatest guitar players, people like Peter Townsend and Eric Clapton, uh, Peter Frampton, those guitar players can't read music. The Beatles couldn't read music. Almost all of them were self-taught. And we didn't have computers back then. They couldn't download tabs. They couldn't get on YouTube and, and watch people play the songs. So they just sat and listened to, to songs on the radio. Or they bought records and listened. And they taught themselves. It was the autonomy that, that gave them the motivation. It was the autonomy that allowed them to be more engaged and to persist. That's a huge piece of what I want you to walk away with today. Is allowing your kids to choose their activities. I read um, two books by Ken Robinson, one was called The Element, the other was Finding Your Element, and by element he meant finding your thing, when you're in your element, doing what you love to do. And He, he said there was a couple things that were needed, one of them was aptitude, meaning I'm good at this. Another was passion, which means I love to do this, I'm passionate about doing this. So um, aptitude is one, I get it. Um, I'm good at what I do, um, passion, I love it, also attitude. I want this. I have autonomy. I'm choosing it. I'm much more willing to be optimistic about it, to persevere. It'll, it'll create more ambition, more self-belief. And the last piece was opportunity, allowing me to have the opportunity to put my efforts into what I love to do. I saw a study of music students, age 8 to 18. And what they found with these students, these music students, was the ones who went on to become the most successful in their craft only started practicing a lot once they identified an instrument that they really wanted to play and to focus on. And that leads me to this next part of this podcast, talking about not practice, but deep practice. I'm like... like, uh, Talk about deep practice for several minutes and kind of pull it apart so you understand what I mean, so you can then carry it to your kids. There's a certain kind of practice that makes people better at their skill, helps them develop their talents and their skills. And the first part about deep practice, though, is that there needs to be what what, um, the author Daniel Coral called in this book, Talent Code, ignition, meaning getting motivated, getting inspired to try something. There's an old expression that you are what you see, meaning role models. These are, if there's been a brief encounter where you see or you can link your identity to a high-performing person or a group, and you start to think, wow, I want to do that, I could be them. Studies have shown that even a brief connection with a good role model can vastly increase the unconscious motivation to do that. Which is why sometimes it's good to have those posters of rock musicians in your in your bedroom. Or these days having videos of people who are, who are doing what you want to do. Let me give you several examples of that. Um, I'll start with uh, South Korean golfers. Professional golfers. In 1998, a golfer, Si Rai Pak, won the LPGA Championship. And she became a national icon in South Korea. She was the first South Korean woman to win an LPGA championship. And she was. And there was very few people, very few women at that time playing golf in South Korea. Ten years after her winning that championship, there were 45 South Korean women on the LPGA tour, and they were winning about one out of every three events. You are what you see. Let me talk for a minute about Russian tennis players. In 1998, 17-year-old Anna Kornikova reached the Wimbledon semis. And that created a huge stir in Russia. She became a role model. And by 2004, six years later, Russian women were making the finals regularly. By 2007, about 11 years later, Russian women occupied five of the top 10 and 12 of the top 50 uh, top women players in their rankings. And it started with that seed that motivated kids to want to be like her. Uh, how about the little country of uh, uh, Curacao and their Little League baseball team? They, they reached the semifinals of the Little League Baseball Championship six out of the last eight years, or six out of eight years, And they won the title in 2004, despite being one of the poorest countries with the poorest facilities anywhere. You think, well, how did these these poor kids from this poor country, how are they winning the uh, Little League World Series? Well, the ignition came in the 1996 World Series, where where a Karrasin rookie, a, a rookie baseball player, Andrew Jones, who was from that country, hit two home runs. Afterwards there was a huge influx of kids signing up to play baseball. And from that came the little league championships. Another a different look but similar. Think back to the 4-minute mile barrier where nobody could break the 4-minute mile running I'm talking about. Roger Bannister finally broke that 4-minute mile in May of 1954. And it had been considered an unbreakable record. And when he broke it, he only broke it by a fraction of a second. And at the time, it was called the single greatest athletic accomplishment of the 20th century. That was in May of 1954. In the weeks after he he broke the four minute mile, John Landy broke the barrier as well. And in the next season, several more runners did it, too. And within three years, 17 runners had broken the barrier. Roger Bannister's achievement said this to everyone, to all the runners. By the way, you can do this, too. So role models can provide the, the ignition, the inspiration, the motivation to try something. It's important for our kids to, to watch and listen to people really closely to, and imagine the feeling of performing that skill just like that, that athlete is or that musician is or that whoever is. To kind of pro- project themselves into that person's body and recreate the expert's decision patterns. I Sometimes I've uh, I, uh, seen that with people who are good at chess. They will redo the chess matches of, uh, of the experts, of the champions. They'll replay those, kind of put themselves in the shoes of that person. Experiences with people like that, with watching or being around role models, can cause an intense, unconscious, emotional response. It can create, it can create a fascination with, a love of, it, an inspiration. It, it can light a kid on fire. It can say to that, that kid, I want to be like them. I'm going to be willing to delay gratification and work hard. I want X, so I'm, I better do Y and Z like crazy right now. If i want to be like that they're motivated by a desire to connect themselves to a higher achieving group or a high high achieving person it becomes the image of their ideal future self if you will and that creates energy and the motivation for deep practice let's talk about deep practice after you get the ignition then you have to go into the deep practice phase deep practice means Reaching or stretching yourself slightly beyond your current ability. Spending time in, in the zone are this difficulty that people call the sweet spot. You're practicing just beyond where your ability is. And once you start practicing there, you embrace the power of repetition. So your, your actions become faster and more automatic. You're playing on the edge of your competence, if you will. Andrew Erickson did a lot of research, and he showed that, the, that most world-class experts in anything practice between three to five hours per day, no matter what skill they're pursuing. He also was one of the people who first talked about that, the fact that in every field, the experts usually have around 10,000 hours of committed, deliberate practice, working on technique, seeking constant critical feedback, focusing ruthlessly and showing up their weaknesses, that 10-year that rule, that 10,000-hour rule, if you will, dates back to about 1899, where they found that world-class expertise in most domains required roughly a decade of committed practice. So that 10 years of committed practice turned into the 10,000-hour rule. In the book Genius, explained by Michael Howe, he talked about Mozart, and people considered him to be a genius, a prodigy, but what we don't know about Mozart was, by his sixth birthday, six years of age, he had studied 3,500 hours of music with his instructor slash father. He wasn't born; he, he may have been born with talent, but it had to be practiced. There's a woman, Tu Yu, Yu who was the first and only Chinese national to win the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. And she was the first Chinese woman in any category to win the Nobel Peace Prize. She had no research experience, no postgrad degree, but she was inspired to start looking for cures for malaria because it was affecting her country so much. She was inspired by a recipe for a medication that would, had been made from a sweet wormwood from a fourth century Chinese alchemist. She experimented, she experimented on herself. With some, with some sweet wormwood extract um, uh, medications. And by the time she found a cure, she had gone through and tested 240,000 compounds. Let me say that again. 240,000 compounds before she found the one that cured malaria. And that's now regarded as one of the most profound drug discoveries in medicine history. She's, uh, that's cured malaria in 146 million people between the, between the years 2000 and 2015. 146 million people between 2000 and 2015 because of her deep practice and her persistence. Practicing or deep practicing is the most effective if you're in your sweet spot, at the edge of your capabilities. And the reason that that works so much because of a substance in our brain called myelin m-y-e-l-i-n myelin is a substance that wraps our nerve fibers and it makes the signals stronger and faster and more accurate by preventing electrical impulses from leaking out it's like an insulation if you will whenever we practice anything myelin responds by wrapping layers of insulation around that particular neural circuit So if you're practicing your tennis stroke, it wraps myelin around the circuits that have to do with tennis strokes. If you're doing it about, if you're practicing your math, it's the part of the brain and the neural circuits there get more myelin. And every new layer adds a little bit more skill, a little bit more speed to that particular experience. And the thicker the myelin gets, the better it insulates the the connections, and the faster and more accurate our movements and thoughts become. The more you generate impulses to a specific area of your brain, be it a math or the violin or singing or dancing or tennis or soccer or whatever, and the more you not only generate impulses, but you encounter and overcome difficulties, the more neural scaffolding you build and the more neural scaffolding scaffolding you build, the faster you learn. Now, a struggle is required to get skill circuitry to to fire optimally yet to fire the circuits suboptimally make mistakes pay attention to those mistakes and slowly teach your circuits you have to keep practicing to fire those particular circuits to keep the myelin functioning properly so it's this process of reaching and falling short reaching again learning reaching again straining towards the target and falling just short And then finally reaching the skill level that you want. It also helps during slow. I'm I'm sorry. It also helps with deep practice to slow it down. Experts say it's better to spend three hours on one single page of notes than to just whip through ten pages of notes. Slowing down allows you to attend more closely to your errors and your mistakes. And it, that creates a higher degree of precision with each of the firings in your brain. There's a famous school, a Meadow Mount School of Music. And they, what they teach their students is if you're practicing your instrument and someone walking by hears you and they can recognize the song you're playing, that means you're playing too fast. Exaggerated slowness reveals more mistakes and smaller mistakes. So the truth is that practice doesn't make perfect, practice makes myelin, and myelin makes perfect. Nerve filings grow myelin, myelin controls speed, and impulse speed is the skill building thing that you need. In order to have that deep practice and to reach beyond your your, uh, current state of competence, that's why it's so important to have autonomy and passions. That's what will allow you to persist and have and be willing to spend 10,000 hours. Because wrapping myelin around big circuits requires an immense amount of time and energy. Florence, Italy, in the time of 1440 to about 1490, they called that the Italian Renaissance. And Florence became the epicenter for the rise of... Uh, Uh, something called craft guilds. Lots of amazing artists came from that time. Craft guilds were associations of painters and weavers and goldsmiths, and they organized themselves to regulate the competition and to control quality. And those craft guilds grew incredible talent. And it was built on an apprenticeship system where boys around the age of seven were sent to live with a master for a fixed term of five to ten years. And they worked directly under the tutelage and the supervision of a master. And they all learned their craft from the bottom up. Through action, uh, they competed within a hierarchy. They rose after some years to be a journeyman. And eventually, if they were skilled enough, then they became a master. So Leonardo da Vinci studied under Verruccio. Veruccio studied under Donatello. Donatello under Gilberti. Uh, Michelangelo studied under Gilber- uh, Galandolo. Galandolo studied under Baldovinetti. You get it. They all frequented each other's studios in this cooperative competitive arrangement but they all spent years developing their craft. Those apprenticeships uh, entailed thousands of hours of solving problems, trying, failing, trying again within a very nice supportive system. The boys would be taught a series of progressive steps from grinding colors to making copies to working on the master's designs and eventually to inventing their own paintings or sculptures. The famous Michelangelo, between the ages of six and ten, lived with a stone cutter. He learned how to use the hammer and the chisel before he could read and write even. He tried but failed briefly at schooling, but he was able to apprentice with the great Ghirlandolo, sketching, copying, uh, preparing frescoes in one of Florence's largest churches. Then he was taught by the master sculptor Bertoldo, and he lived and worked for Lorenzo de Medici until he was seventeen. Michelangelo was a promising but very little-known artist until he produced the Pieta at age twenty-four, and when people saw the piatta, they said it was a it was pure genius. But Michelangelo said, if people knew how hard I had to work to gain my mastery, it wouldn't seem so wonderful at all. He put in his deep practice for years. That apprentice system also produced a lot of good coaches. That's one of the things that your kids are all going to need if they're going to develop their talents and skills is coaching and good coaches. In the books that I read, They described the best teachers and coaches as being more quiet reserved and also mostly older because they had spent enough time developing their skills and the best coaches spent most of their time offering small targeted highly specific adjustments adjustments and input the researchers also found that was crucial in those early phases of learning any skill To get the learner involved and captivated and hooked. And to need and want more information and expertise. They made the initial learning experience fun, pleasant, rewarding. Uh, Much of it was playful, playful activities. They made things like a game. And then they modeled the right way to do something. They showed the incorrect way, then they remodeled the right way. They had words and gestures that were short and sweet that showed players the correct way to do something. They were honing those brain circuits. So they would explain, they would demonstrate, the kids would imitate, there was correction, and then repetition, the deep practice. But I want to go back and and reiterate, those early coaches especially made it fun. I don't hear that all the time from the kids I work with. Coaches that yell, that's all about drilling. Young kids going to, to uh, showcases when they're you know, in grade school. So much pressure. A lot of kids quit sports, youth sports, because it's not fun. That's the number one reason it's not fun. And it's usually not fun because of the coaches and or their parents, our parents yelling from the stands. I heard of a good metaphor in one of the books too, that when you're first learning a new skill, those first reps establish the brain pathways for the future. You want to do it right the first time. And the metaphor is it's like the first sled track in a new field of snow. Once that first sled goes through and puts some grooves in the, in the snow, thereafter, you tend to follow those same first grooves. So it's important to go slow and be precise. Our brains are really good at building new circuits. They're not so good at unbuilding them, which is a reason why it's so important to not allow bad habits. It's also important to pay close attention right after you make a mistake when you're practicing. Brain scan studies have revealed a vital instant, only 0.25 seconds after a mistake is made in which the person will either look hard at the mistake, or they'll ignore it. And the people who pay deeper attention to their errors learn a lot more than people who ignored it. The more you pay attention to the mistake and you fix them, the more the right connections you'll be building inside your brain. And that can involve some struggle and frustration because you're practicing at the edge of your abilities. And that's why it is true, the old maxim, that no pain, no gain. One author called it desirable difficulty. I'm pounding away at this because I think sometimes we think if we make our kids do something and they make them practice longer that they'll get better and that's not necessarily true. There's a certain kind of practice, a deep practice that is, that's how kids will end up being better. and That's how they'll learn to develop any skill. I also think it's, it's interesting. I think this is true. Another way to help kids learn a new skill is to have them teach it. I first learned that years ago from Stephen Covey, the author of Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. He used to talk about the, the value of, of uh, kids teaching things in order to learn them. And one of the things he used to do with his kids, as I remember, was on Fridays, when the week of school was over, he would sit down with each of his kids and they, they would teach him some of what they learned in school that week to imprint again in those brain circuits what they're learning. Also remember that every kid is not going to become an expert at anything when they're 7 or 10 or 16 or 18 there. You know, there are late bloomers and I think sometimes in our uh, culture which is so into pushing early hyperspecialization I one of my uh or my uh, nephews Uh, played soccer in kindergarten and he was on a a mixed sex team, you know, boys and girls. It was fun. I used to go to his games. It was sweet. And then in first grade, they separated the boys and the girls and it was interesting. They had two girl teams and two boy teams. And by that first year of the all-male team, there were two teams. And somehow magically, all the good athletes are on one team and the lesser athletes are on the other. Already, there were kids who were given up on. They weren't very good. They weren't as good as the other kids. And so they were with teams that played less, had, quote unquote, uh, not as good coaching, etc., etc. Albert Einstein didn't speak until he was four. Isaac Newton did very poorly in school. A newspaper editor fired Walt Disney because he had no good ideas. The great scientist Werner von Braun failed ninth grade algebra. The musician uh, Haydn gave up making a musician of Beethoven because he was so slow in plotting. He gave up on Beethoven. He had apparently no talent, according to Haydn. So don't give up on your kids. Some kids develop more slowly. It's okay. I also think it's very important That you value passion where you find it. Um, Sometimes our kids are not going to be passionate about what you want them to be passionate about. And that includes schoolwork. I read, um, I think it was in The Element book, a story about a girl, eight years old. Her name was Jillian. In, In the 1930s, she was taken to a psychologist because she was doing very poorly in school. She was late turning in her work she was a poor test taker. She was constantly fidgeting and disrupting the class. She she was uh, being labeled as being lazy and not very smart. After hearing the mother's information and observing Jillian, the psychologist said he needed to talk to the mom in private. So they walked out of the room into the room next door. As they left, the psychologist turned a radio to a station that was playing dance music. Then the mom and Uh, the doctor, sat down and watched Jillian through the two-way mirror as she gracefully danced as she was in her own little world. The psychologist turned to Jillian's mom and said, Jillian isn't sick. Jillian isn't lazy. Jillian is a dancer. Take her to a dance school. On the very first day at the dance school, Jillian saw a room full of kids who were just like her. Kids who couldn't sit still. Kids who just had to move. She had many years of dance training there. She eventually joined the Royal Ballet and during her illustrious dancing career, she worked with people like Andrew Lloyd Webber, creating dances for shows like Cats, Phantom of the Opera and many more as a choreographer. That was her passion. I was doing a talk with a group of parents who all knew each other a couple years ago. And uh, we were, I was talking about motivation and how, and how to uh, help your kids develop their own intrinsic motivation. And one of the moms started complaining about her daughter who was 13 years old and talking about how unmotivated she was and she was lazy and she wasn't into anything. And the mom even said, and it was funny at, at first, she said, my daughter is so lazy if, that if they ever invent a remote control for the TV that you can adjust with your blinking your eyes, She'll be the first one in line to buy it. That's how lazy she is. Everybody laughed. But one of the moms said, well, that's not true. She said, my kids love your daughter. She's their favorite babysitter. Another one of the parents said, yeah, when she comes out onto the street to, pl- to hang out and to play, all the kids in the neighborhood come running over because they love your daughter. And the mom of this girl said, well, yeah, she I know she loves kids. And she tells me all the time she wants to be a preschool teacher when she grows up. And I'm telling her, you're, you're not going to be a preschool teacher because not, you not—you can't make enough money. Our kids will show us their passions. And we need to value those. Just because she wants to be a preschool teacher when she's 13 doesn't mean she will or won't. I hope she does. We need more good preschool teachers. But my point is, kids need to develop their interests and their passions over time. Read that book, Range, by David Epstein, because he found that most people who end up being pretty good at what they do had a range of experiences before they got to their thing, before they found their element, if you will. So we need to value those things when they're younger, even if it's it's the kind of thing that doesn't seem to fly very well in your family. They may be different than you. Value their difference. I have a lot of girls who who um, aren't doing that well in school. School's hard for them for a variety of reasons. They may have a learning problem. They may have uh, focus problems. And so, one of the things I've done in my office, I've, I think I've talked about this before, but I'll, I'll repeat now. I, I'll, I ask them to rate their intelligence from zero to 100, with zero meaning the worst, 100 meaning the best. And they always give me a number, I've done this with audiences. I do the same thing. People, I'll give a number. I'll have people in the audience raise their hands. Like a girl might say, I'm a 40 or I'm a 60. And once they give me a number, I'll tell them that they flunked the test. And they'll give me like a, you know, a quizzical look like, what do you mean? I said, you flunked the test because you didn't ask me a very important question. What you could have asked me was, what kind of intelligence are you talking about? They assumed I was talking about school intelligence, the ability to sit in a classroom for seven hours a day and listen to the teacher and know what's going to be on the test and memorize things and regurgitate it onto a a multiple choice test. That is one kind of intelligence. But there are so many more. I ask girls, what are the kind of intelligences are there? And sometimes they're like, I don't know. I'm not saying, well, think about it. And then they'll say things like, well, things like, well, art, dance, problem solving, being creative, having a good imagination, street smarts, people skills. There's so many kinds of intelligences that are so important out in the real world as you grow up. But we don't value those as much as we, as we value school intelligence. So value all of your daughter's intelligences. And it may take a while for, for your son or daughter to find their thing, which is very common. Most of us meander on along a winding path, testing and learning and trying things and trying a range of things until we kind of find our thing. Duke Ellington, famous musician. He took some formal uh, music lessons at, at seven, but he quickly lost interest, didn't like the teacher, Um, And he never learned to read music because he he, he didn't uh, practice and learn it very long. He was focused more on baseball at that time, drawing, painting. At 14, he got his ignition. He heard ragtime music for the very first time. And when he did, he fell in love with it. And he sat down at the piano and he tried to copy what he had heard. And he said, there was no connection between me and music until I started fiddling with it myself on my own. As far as anyone teaching me, there was too many rules, too many regulations. As long as I could sit down and figure it out myself, then it was all right. That's the autonomy I was talking about earlier. Inspiration, motivation, ignition comes at different ages, different times, and different ways. Oftentimes it can be through misfortunes, challenges in our lives. The famous nonfiction writer and filmmaker, Sebastian Junger, at age 29, was an arborist. And one day he was harnessed in this upper canopy when he tore his leg open with a chainsaw. And as he was recuperating, he got, he got the idea to write about dangerous jobs. Two months later, he was fishing in a fishing vessel in Massachusetts where he, uh, where he became lost at sea. And after that, when he got back, he wrote his first book, The Perfect Storm. Another one of his famous books is Restrepo. And Sebastian Junger said, That cut in that canopy that day was the very best thing that could ever have happened to me. Virtually every good thing that's happened in my life can be traced back to a misfortune. You don't know what's good or bad when things happen. You have to wait and find out. Another example is the sculptor and painter Lonnie Holly. She's a self-taught artist who grew up in po- uh, very poor in Alabama. When she was 29 years of age, uh, Lonnie Holiday's sister and her two kids died in a fire. And the family was so poor they couldn't afford headstones. so he gathered discarded sandstone at a nearby foundry and he, ca- and he carved them himself carved the headstones himself. And he said it felt so good. He started carving gravestones for other families and they started making sculptures out of anything he could find and that led to his career. That is a much more common way for people to find their thing than forcing them to do something that we think is good for them. Or they may have a talent for something and I've had so many parents tell me, well, she's good at it. She should do that. I say, just because she's good at something doesn't mean she has the interest or passion for it. Let her find her things. There are a lot of things that we can do to help our kids develop their talents and skills. Make sure your end of mind with your kids isn't uh, valuing character. I'm sorry, ca- valuing achievement over character. Make sure you're allowing them to find their own thing. It's okay for kids to not have discovered their thing. In their childhood, I've had a lot of parents like frustrated because their kid hasn't found something they love, and they're like eight years old or 15. Who cares they need more time? Late bloomers happen. It's okay for your kids to start something and not finish, to to write books and 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 finish and not finish it because halfway through they get bored with it and they start something else. Same thing with with artwork or stories or sculptures. That's how the great masters do it. It's. it's Quantity, not quality. Give kids autonomy to choose their activities and also the autonomy to move on when they're bored and and they want to try something else. Make sure you create a lot of downtime so they can try things and daydream and take risks and make mistakes and do the deep practice thing. Expose them to a range of opportunities. If they're only into sports, I, I would encourage them to try something totally different have them be in a play, have them uh, take an art class, etc. Also expose them to different kinds of experts that might ignite them through books, stories, biographies, documentaries, talks. I saw a really good documentary recently about Quincy Jones, the uh, musician producer. It's called Quincy. I'd, I'd watch that with your kids. And talk about, you know, his ignition and how he got to where he was. Teach your kids about deep practice. Talk to them about that sweet spot just beyond their capabilities. Teach them about myelin and the importance of practicing and stopping and going slower and making mistakes and correcting the mistakes and do it again and repetition and back and forth and back and forth at And keep laying down myelin. Teach them about that. And that's what we mean by no pain, no gain. I'd be very picky about the coaches your kids get always, but especially early on. A good coach can ignite a passion and a fire in your kids about something. But how they do it is important. They need to make it fun. They need to make it engaging. And if it's not, move on to a different coach. There's lots of coaches and there's lots of teams value passion where you find it and trust that inspiration and motivation comes at different ages sometimes through misfortune even it's okay you don't need to protect them from challenges and misfortune because that's when they learn that's when they might find their thing their calling their inspiration support them in finding a tribe Kids who have some of the similar interests. I've seen a lot of girls in my counseling practice who struggle because they have different interests. They, and therefore, people think that they're weird or, or whatever, and they start to believe that they're weird, even though they just have different interests. It helps if you can find other kids who like anime or drawing who, or who play guitar or who are also into theater or like to do makeup or whatever it may be. It's also good to praise character instead of just care, uh, praising what people do. So instead of saying, you know, your artwork is creative, it's more valuable to say, wow, I notice that you're a really creative person. Instead of saying, um, uh, thank you for helping me, it's better to say, I love that how much you, you're a helper. Because when you uh, praise character, What you're saying to kids is, it looks like you're the kind of person who blank. Kids become more generous if you say things like, i notice you're the kind of person who likes to help other people whenever you can. That motivates kids to become more generous because they want to earn that identity. When you praise character, kids internalize it as part of their identity. And they start developing a self-concept that they are a good person, a moral person, And that's much better than just seeing them doing good things or or commenting about the things that they do. Let me close with a quick story that I learned about Quincy Jones, musician Quincy Jones from that documentary. It's called Quincy. I think it was on Netflix. Anyway, he lived in uh, Chicago uh, in the city, uh, didn't have much money. And when he was seven years of age, his mother, who had had mental health problems, died. She died when he was seven. She left uh, him with a younger brother and a dad who worked a lot. He described his dad as a workaholic. He was a carpenter for the mob in Chicago, apparently. So Quincy and his brother run the streets a lot, on their own, got in trouble a lot. One night, he broke into an armory, and he saw a piano sitting in the armory. He walked over sat down and he started playing it and he said i fell in love with music in that moment as a kid he started hanging out at jazz clubs watching musicians he taught himself to play several instruments percussion trumpet piano Uh, he started playing trumpet in the school band when he was 14. and he was playing in a uh, in a band in bars when he was 14 years of age as well he was asked to join a big band And he started touring at the age of 18. And lucky for Quincy Jones, a lot of the older musicians took him under their wing and mentored him. People like Count Basie. He started writing and arranging music. It was hard in that time in the country because he was African American and, you know, people didn't recognize them for their creativity and and their abilities. He had to spend some time in France where there was a lot less prejudice at the time to African Americans or to black people. He studied in Paris with some very famous classical musicians and an or- and with an orchestra. And for the first time, he felt free. And he started to become more creative. And he said, that famous line, you want to be what you see. It's helpful to find our kids good mentors. Look for those in books, movies, bio- biographies, documentaries, etc. Go listen to to music, go watch plays, uh, go watch sporting events, sometimes we're not going to be the person who ignites our kids' passion, but they'll find those examples out in the world. I hope this is helpful. I know this is a long one. I I apologize, but um, I will list the books in the the, the show notes on my website, www.drtimjordan.com. And I, I, I encourage you to read those. They were very interesting. I learned a lot. I hope this is helpful to you. I appreciate you stopping by every week and passing these on also to your friends. I'll be back here with another podcast in a week. Thanks for stopping by. Waiting on a tax return. Hopefully, it ends up in your hands.